Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome back to another episode of Animals to the Max. What's up? How's everyone doing? I'm Corbin Maxey. Thank you, as always, so much for giving me your ears. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Man, I have to tell you, I had... Okay, I'm, I'm just going to say it. We probably have probably one of the most famous people we've ever had on the podcast today. In the wildlife community, and you know, even global, she has made such an impact. Today on the podcast, I interviewed Dr. Cynthia Moss, and she has been studying elephants in Africa for over 40 years. Matter of fact, in 1972, she founded the Ambuselli Elephant Research Project. And it is the currently the longest running study of elephants in the world. And so she knows elephants more than anyone else on the planet. And I'm not going to lie. It took, <laughs> I was, you know, when I, okay, I'm, I'm just going to be honest. When I sent the email out, I was thinking, okay, this is, you know, really going to be a long shot, but maybe Dr. Moss would want to come on the show. So I sent an email out to her team, just, you know, fingers crossed, but you never know. And they responded and it was you know, it was so awesome. You know, I'm going to be honest. So I think what really helped out was my interview with the famous author, Carl Safina. He's a famous author and conservationist. If you have not listened to that podcast interview, that's episode 29. So go back and check it out. But he wrote a book, Beyond Words. And in a portion of the book, he spent time with Dr. Moss and her research team in Amboseli National Park for a few months. And it completely changed his life. And he told me he would never be the same. So I was literally determined to get her on the show, to talk about her research project, just to talk about her life. I mean, she started, and you're gonna hear this in the podcast, but it's so crazy to me. She started as a, a news reporter in New York City. Uh, she worked for Newsweek, I believe. And then she moved to Africa, dropped everything, and has not left. So. For any of you out there who have always wanted to just go out in the wild or just, you know, want to pursue a similar career path, by the way, very big shoes to fill if you want to, <laughs> you know, go Dr. Moss's route. But I'm just going to say this is very inspirational because she had a dream and she has a passion and she has st stuck with that for so many years. And so I really hope you enjoy my interview with Dr. Cynthia Moss. Thank you so much for doing this. You were the most recognized person we've ever had on the podcast. Oh, well. <laughs> no, I'm That's serious. Nice. Yeah, I just thank you. I mean, you are known all around the world as one of the top elephant researchers. You're an educator, an author. I mean, <laughs> where, <laughs> Dr. Moss, where do we begin with your career? Oh, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Has it, I mean, so I, I've been doing research on you. And so, yes. you, so, I mean, has it always been elephants? Well, since, <laughs> since 1967 anyway, but I, I came over here as a, the, my original trip was in 1967 and I was, I was a tourist, but I was a, I was sort of more of a, I was here for two months. So it wasn't like a, a, a two week uh, safari or anything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was, it was just serendipity how I got into elephants. Cause I was, um, one of the people who I looked up was Ian Douglas Hamilton, who was studying elephants in Lake Manure National Park in Tanzania. 
Now, somebody could have told me to look up somebody who was studying zebras or, or lions or something, and I may today be studying those, but it was he happened to be studying elephants. But I didn't have, have – I loved all the wildlife, and probably if one asked, I probably would have, like everyone else, been, oh, the big cats are wonderful. It's a good thing I didn't choose the big cats, because especially lions and leopards, because I'm <laughs> not a nocturnal person. So. <laughs> time I would have had, had a really hard time on that one but anyway so it was elephants and I I volunteered on his project for three weeks and then I was totally hooked on elephants so that was it for that was it for elephants wow and so that was in 1967 do you yes. do you roughly know what the the population of elephants were around that time in Africa yes there were supposedly and there was there was a conference I, I happened to go to in, in 1974 and everybody got together and tried to do an estimate and they figured there were 1.3 million then. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's, we're lucky if they're 400,000. I'm not sure that there are even that many. Oh my yeah. goodness. Okay. Okay. So you yeah. go there in 1967 and first of all, so you were a journalist for Newsweek, yes. right? Well, wait, so how... <laughs> This is completely opposite end of the spectrum. So how do you go from a journalist in New York? <laughs> Was it just yeah. that one that one trip that changed everything for you? Yes, it changed everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I after my, I was had taken a leave of absence, a five-month leave of absence to travel. And Newsweek was good about that. And, um, and so I went back to my job. But I had been invited to, even before, I'd been invited to come back and work as a full-time assistant on that project. So it had a lot to think about because I liked my job. I liked my life. I loved New York. and But I um, I decided to, to give it all up and, and, and come out here. And I've never regretted it for one moment. Not yeah. for one. Yeah. yeah. But I just can't. So it just, so in just three weeks, he invited you to be like a part-time assistant, basically research assistant. Sure. Yeah. As a volunteer assistant for three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. You must've really impressed him. I don't know. I mean, did you have <laughs> <laughs> like what, what great qualities for a young wildlife researcher? <laughs> I think, you know, I think, um, I think I'm observant and uh, patient. That's what it takes. Actually, women are much better at serving. <laughs> Most men will even tell you that. So it, it, all those qualities come out. You know, the, the, you know, empathetic. You know, sort of very observant, detail oriented. You know, the whole all those things. Yeah. Man, that is insane. Yeah. I remember, uh, Dr. Moss, I went to Kenya for my first time in 2012, and it was a life-changing oh. experience. Oh, I bet. Good. Oh, I wanted to drop everything, too. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> you, you actually fell yeah. through with it. Uh, okay, so so what yeah. happened? So basically, you are so you moved to Africa. You literally drop everything. So I became a – no, that was a full-time – job and I and then he that project was finished before the end like I came back in January 1968 okay so I had my 50th anniversary of living in Africa just just recently which is pretty you know shocking to me congratulations <laughs> but, <laughs> and um but Ian's project was finished by he he went back in like October of 68 back to Oxford to write up his PhD. So I, I then 
luckily, again, another just pure luck, got, got offered a volunteer position in Kenya working for some vets. Because I didn't want to go back. I'd given up everything, you know, my cats, my horse, my, my apartment, my job in New York. And I had nothing to go back to and didn't want to go back. I wanted to be in Africa. So that was very, very lucky. That was probably the luckiest thing that ever happened to me is just being, being called back by those people. And then I did a lot of volunteering on different on elephant projects. I continued to do some monitoring and stuff in Manyara for Ian. And then it took about three years. Yeah, it took three years before I set up the, <clears throat> the project in Amboseli. Okay, and that was, and you started the um, Amboseli Elephant Research Project in 1972, correct? That's it, yeah. And yeah. it is currently the longest running study of elephants in the world? Yes. Oh yes. my gosh. <laughs> what an accomplishment. <laughs> like, did you ever see yourself doing that? I mean, oh my goodness. No, I thought I'd be there for about three years. <laughs> but no, no, it's a. Uh, you know, and, and some of the elephants that were there in 1972 are still alive. That's the difference between studying something like lions or, and studying elephants. You know, some of them are alive, which is amazing. You know, there's there. So they're not very many, but there's there's still some. Wow. I just that is just completely blows my mind. So so yeah, M, so yeah. um, you know, National Park, what was different about their elephants? Why Amboseli? Well, they chose Amboseli because and, and I had I was I started this project with a colleague named Harvey Crows who had studied whom I had had met in Tanzania. He had he was studying elephants in the Serengeti in Tanzania. And then he took a job up in Nairobi uh, teaching at the university. But he wanted to, to continue his work with elephants, and I wanted to continue studying elephants. And so we got together on this project at the, in the first few years, and, um, which was good because I didn't have a degree, and you know, I had my, my degrees in philosophy. You know? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't have a biology degree. And so it, I needed somebody like that with a, with a doctorate you know, and everything. So um, we... We chose Amboseli because it's um, it was it was one of the last relatively undisturbed populations of elephants in the sense that there was no there was no fence around the park there was no there they were still able to move in and out of the national park as they had been for you know centuries and um, they the people surrounding Amboseli the Maasai people were fairly tolerant of elephants so the elephants spend a lot of their time out on the the ranch is owned by the the um, the Maasai, and most most places where elephants were back in 1972, when there were still a lot of elephants, they were restricted to more and more getting restricted to protected areas and losing all their range. Uh, so, for instance, in in Manyara, where Ian did his study, he he um, estimated that. Elef the elephants had lost 75% of their range in the previous 50 years. Wow. And, and these elephants in Amboseli hadn't lost any of their range and are yeah, virtually none of it. And they, uh, they weren't being heavily poached, although poaching did come up late, but they weren't being heavily poached at the time where poaching was getting to be a big problem in other places. So it, we wanted to get baseline data 
on as natural a population as we could to be used just to get it for one thing because elephant you know how long we're going to have elephants and also to show what elephants need in order to conserve them and and to help elephants uh, in other places it's not just Amboseli to compare and contrast the, uh, with with the elephants in Amboseli. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do you know roughly just when you got there in 1972, how many elephants Amboseli had? There were about six or seven hundred then. Okay. Yeah, but that had been reduced because there had been quite a lot of uh, poaching and hunting in the 60s. Um, so not as much as in other places, but some estimates were that there were about 1,200 elephants in the ecosystem, not not in the protected area. But by the time I got there, there were about 700 but they've grown. Yeah. 700. Yeah. Now, Dr. Moss, just explain to some young listeners who have never been to Amboseli National Park. Can you just explain yes. it like a visual for our listeners? Okay. Well, it, it's, very, it's very famous because it sits right below Kilimanjaro, you know, and the snow-capped mountain, the highest mountain in, in Africa and very – iconic mountain that everybody sees the pictures of. So when you see, uh, when you see, um, pictures of, wait a minute, my dogs, my oh, dogs. Oh, you're fine. This is, this is a pet friendly show, Dr. Moss. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all right. Can you see? There she is. Oh my gosh. What's her name? Phoebe. 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 I like that. She's, she's- She's terror. She seems to hear thunder, which I can't hear. But so she's trying to get in my lap because she. Take your time, Doctor Moss. I usually Zoe, my dog, wakes me up to have to go to the oh, bathroom I or something. You, Zoe. Do you really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Do the do the dogs ever? I mean, is this? I don't know if this is a really not a very good question to ask you, but um, yeah. I mean, do the dogs ever accompany you on these trips? No, they can't because yeah. I'm in a national park where domestic animals aren't allowed. Yeah. Okay. So who, yeah. who watches the dogs when you are out for weeks or sometimes months in, in these parks? I have, uh, I have somebody who's, who's here at the house. It's weird for me. Cause when I leave, I have like 30 different rescued exotic animals. So like yeah. alligators. Oh, and... oh my God. So oh, what yeah. do you do? Leave. Well, that's what I'm trying to ask you. I need a reference. I have certain family members, but the nice thing about, yeah. you know, like reptiles is they're not as time consuming or, you know what I mean? Like it's not yeah. like a dog or something like that, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. So no, no, they sort of need to be fed about once every three <laughs> months or something. Isn't that right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. okay fine. Okay. Yeah. So back, yeah. so back to Amboseli National Park, just a visual. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's quite flat, but um, because, uh, in the center, it's a basin. It's a, uh, the park is a basin. It was an old lake. So it's, it's it, all the water flowed down into the middle of it. And it's quite, uh, but it's, it's beautiful because it's, um, it's a combination of plains and swamp beautiful marshes full of birds and the elephants go into the marshes and feed there every day. And then you have Kilimanjaro with its white cap right there. And then there are mountains, all smaller mountains all around. So it's very pretty. And, uh, and that's just, the park itself is very small by African standards. It's only 150 square miles. Now that's, that's a small park, but but the ecosystem that the elephants move in and the other wildlife is 5,000 square, 
square miles. So there's, it's quite large, and, um, and that extends into northern Tanzania, that ecosystem. So, um, so it's, it's actually a large area, and the area around it is um, community-owned land called group ranches where the Maasai have their cattle. And uh, things are changing a bit, and that's one of our problems is land use change. But on three sides, it's still pretty good. But on the eastern side, it's, um, it, it, the group ranch got um, broken up into parcels, and then people sold it, and people are building on it. And, and so we're, lo- we're losing that to the elephants. But there's still a lot left, thank goodness. Are they yeah. still? I mean, because you said back in the 1970s, they were the, the Maasai were still pretty accepting, just regarding having elephants live around them. I mean, yeah, is it is, is there still that same mentality, or is it just getting a little more? It's yes, it's still surprisingly good on the. Uh, I mean, there are problems. You know, if somebody gets killed or gets hurt by an elephant, then there's retaliation, and um, it, there. It's there are more people, there are more cattle, and there are more elephants at the moment. So there there is what what people call human wildlife conflict. But um, and then on the, in the east, there's now farms or a lot of farms, and the Maasai who don't like to farm themselves, but they kind of uh, rent out their farms to to other other people who do farm, and then those those get raided by the elephants and by other wildlife, and then that causes a problem. So yes, there's there are you know there's there's the problem of space. There are many many people, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the population's growing all the time, and people need need land and space. So there is a there there are problems. So do you spend? I'm assuming a a lot of time, especially with your team, educating the local community about elephants. Um, no, we well, not really. No, we we. We do, we do training. We we haven't done a lot in the work in, in education. There are other groups who do that, so we haven't felt that we needed because we're basically a research project. Mm-hmm. We're ninety percent a research project, not a not a conservation. You know, not a so much a conservation. That's our goal, of course, but it's it's also our main goal is research. So we um, what we do is we have a training program where we teach people how to study elephants. So people from other countries come and train with us, uh, you know, young scientists and, and then others from within Kenya. And then we also train rangers who are going to be dealing with elephants, but train them at a slightly different level, but about elephants, how to tell a male from a female, for instance, which most people can't do. And um, how, how do we do it, Dr. Moss? You have to oh, teach me. I'm, I'm a young scientist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's the shape of the of the animal and the size and, uh, it, you know, and the genitals if you can see them. But sometimes in the long grass, you see you can't see them. But you can – the head shape tells you a lot and and the size of the tusks and the, the – uh, the circumference of the tusks and everything. So I have uh, one of my the people works for me, Nora and Jiraini. She's she's our training coordinator, and she does she's fabulous. And she tells she shows them how to do ID photos and how to, to collect data. So we have that kind of training program, and we also have um, a scholarship program for the for Maasai men, young men and women from around the community, and we we send them to. Um, university and also primary and secondary schools. So we have, we have a, you know, 
the scholarship program. And, and then we participate a lot with all the meetings and the, uh, with, with the local community and the, and, the, and the people who run the parks, the Kenya Wildlife Service. So we're very much a part of all that. But as far as going out and educating kids or schools, we haven't done a lot of that, although in the, just because other people are doing it. Yeah, and I just and the reason why I asked is like for instance like I mean we we have like coyotes out here and and, and yeah. wolves and so we so we'll educate people and be like oh you know put your chickens up at yeah. night you screen oh, I just yeah. Yeah. I just don't know how you would educate I mean like how do you tell like the the Maasai to like you know what I mean like keep their crops safe is it just kind of like a yeah. is it well <laughs> like well, that's what yeah we work with other groups I mean friends fact in fact. Uh, with, with a group called Big Life Foundation that we work with a lot. And they, they've actually built a huge fence along the farms and um, along the, the, the base of Kilimanjaro. And what that, in effect, does is it, it fences in the, the farms. It doesn't fence in the elephants. It okay. fences in the farms. So Because the elephants, you know, there they've been going there for whatever, thousands of years, and now they've just found this nice corn and made, you know, <laughs> it's delicious and very nutritious and tastes good. And they'll keep going back for it if they're, if they're not stopped. Yeah, absolutely. So. Okay. Well, I mean, we can move on. I was just, I was just curious. Yeah. I've yeah. Never, never lived with the elephants. Uh, so really quick. So you set out, so you started the project in 1972. Your goal was just to study the social behavior, correct? I mean, it's never yes. really been done. Yeah. 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 So can we talk a little bit about the elephant's social behavior, maybe their family structure for people who aren't familiar? Sure. sure. Well, having worked with Ian, I, he, he was the first person to use individual recognition to, to study elephants. That is to do to get pictures of them so he could identify them. And uh, before that, everybody just sort of looked at them as, you know, not as individuals, but as herds or as whatever. And um, so he was, he was able to confirm what, what a previous scientist had assumed was happening, but had, didn't have proof, was that elephants lived in families, and each family was led by the oldest female, and that the bulls lived, lived separately. So he was able to, Ian was able to confirm that. Now, when I came to, when I went to Amboseli, uh, I, I saw the, you know, families, and, but I actually over the years learned more, learned that they live in a very multi-tiered social system. It's not just 60 families roaming around with, you know, in randomly they have. Um, so there's the family is the core and then they have each family has, has one or two or more um, other families that has a, spe that they have a special relationship with. And I call that the bond group. And then, um, and then there's the families share a particular range in the dry season. And that's, I call them the ones that families that share that range, a clan. And then in Amboseli and other places where they've been studied, the, um, the population divides into subpopulations. So that's another layer of social organization, the subpopulation. And they, in, for instance, in Amboseli, the, the, the families in one subpopulation won't, 
won't have have won't see the the ones in the other subpopulation for months at a time. But then in the wet season, they all they all get together and move and in, in you know all over the place sometimes with each other. So that's another another uh, layer. And then finally, the whole population, which includes all the families, the bond groups, the clans, the subpopulation, and all the the adult bulls who have have left the families at about 14 years old. So they that forms the, the whole population. And our studies have shown that a given female knows the calls of at least 100 other females. Wow. It's the individual call of 100 other females. Man. So they really do, you know, they have huge brains and people wondered, well, why do they have such huge brains? But partly, I think it's partly in the, because of their social life that they do they do know all these other individuals and they and they react to them depending on where they are in those circles of relationship, whether they're their family, bond group, clan, subpopulation. So um, that's we, we think that's and it's also mental maps, I'm sure, help, you know, with their big brains. But I'm sure it's the social life that causes them to have such big brains. And they do they do know a lot of other elephants. How Dr. Moss, so just their communication, they're able to communicate with other elephants, correct, within yes. long distances. Can we talk about that? I mean, that's something fairly new that we've just, recently Yes, they, they, elephants um, make a lot of different calls. They have, they have well, you know, like 70 different sounds they make, some, and, some, and most of those are, are what we call rumbles, these deep rumbles. And... Um, and they all have meanings. My, my colleague Joyce Poole has worked on that, about the meaning of all the rumbles, and she's done all the recordings and everything. And, I mean, for, for example, there's there's a there's very typical rumble you might hear is uh, the let's go rumble, which is one of the matriarch or one of the older females in a family will decide she wants to move the family, and she'll make this special, you know, rumble in her, and also... Uh, a slide of her ears, which makes a noise, and um, and then they respond. Um, or there's the contact rumble, contact call, and contact answer, and that's basically here am I, where are you, and then there's the answer. So, and in fact, that's that's the call that my other colleague Karen McComb has used uh, for her experiments with playing these contact calls to other elephants variety of other elephants and getting and and that way you can ask elephants questions yourself you know do you know this call does this call mean anything to you and and it's fascinating what they're you know like they always know the call of of their somebody within their family and respond and will move toward where the speaker's hidden and uh if it's say a clan member they're calling calling to one that they spend a lot of time in the same area with, they basically don't respond at all. They just sort of go on feeding. But if you play the call of a stranger, somebody in the other subpopulation, say somebody they don't know very well, then they'll 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 perk up and they may bunch together. The, the whole family might come together, and so you can get answers just by doing these nice experiments with them. So they do have uh, a lot of sense of, of who's who and who's where and who should be where and who shouldn't be where. So um, 
uh, that's that's one of the things that we've studied, or you know, because I bring other people in to do to do studies in, in the population. You know. Man, that is just incredible. I, uh, you know, I, I I was a huge fan of yours before, but I was even more of a fan after reading uh, Carl Safina's book Beyond Words. Yes, 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 yes. Lovely book. Beautiful book. It just blew my mind. I mean, just reading about these elephants and, like I said, just how complex their social structures were, but just yeah. how how yeah. emotional elephants are. Oh yeah, very yeah, I, yeah. It just yeah. And they have the, the one of the things we've been trying to get at, and we do these these like questionnaires with my my again another colleague named Phyllis Lee about personality in elephants. They have different personalities, of course. You know, it's not surprising to you who's an animal person, but some people think, oh, no, that's not possible. But they really do. And, and actually families because have different personalities. So, so um, you know, the, the emotional, we have in one family, the one I've done all the films on, the EB family, which was originally Echo's family. I call them the Italian family because they have... <laughs> Because they re- overreact to almost everything. <laughs> so, so, so one one female will go off and be feeding somewhere, you know, behind a palm tree or something, and then she'll come back to the family, and they'll be, "Oh, you're here! How exciting!" And they'll <laughs> rumble and and make a greeting and everything, and 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 we say, "Oh, yeah, that's the EBs. <laughs> They're being Italian." <laughs> So the whole family has, you know, and, and other other families are, you know, more or less, some are quite calm and never seem to show much emotion, but others show a lot of emotion. And yeah, wow. so they definitely have to have different personalities and individuals as well as families. Oh and that goodness. a lot depends on the mate, who the matriarch is. And, yeah. And thank you for that awesome segue, because I want to talk about Echo which you started yes. studying, I believe, in 1973? Yes. I think we met her then, first met, met her in 73, yeah. Tell us who Echo is. Well, Echo was um, a beautiful female with long, graceful, curved tusks. Um, and when I first met her, she was, she was young. She was probably only about 25. And she was the head of a, very, of a small family of seven. But actually, that was the average family size back in the seven, in the early seventies. Was seven, and um, there were a couple of other. There was one other adult female, and then a, like a ten-year-old female. And uh, we put a radio collar on Echo the following year in 1974, and that's how she got her name because it, the thing it made a ping, ping, ping noise. It sounded a bit like an echo, and. Um, so the way we the way we we follow these families is we give each family a letter of the alphabet, and then everybody in that family is given a name starting with E. So everybody else had to since we'd already called her Echo, we had to we named the other ones Emma, Emily, and and uh, Ella, the other two females. And anyway, we followed her, but I didn't follow her any more than anybody else at that time. You know, she was she was well because she was radio collared. We did follow her more than some, but but then the collar eventually fell off, and and we t- she turned out to be a homebody. She was actually not the best elephant to radio <laughs> collar. She never she stayed around in the center of the park all the time, and um, 
the one of the other females, two other females we radio collared, were much more adventurous and went all over the place. But Echo just stayed in the center, which was a good strategy because her family grew and grew and grew. Um, anyway, then um, in nineteen in 1989, when there had been a huge amount of poaching in, in Kenya, terrible, terrible poaching, we started with... Uh, something like 174,000 elephants in 1974. And by the end of 1989, there maybe were 16,000 left. Oh, my goodness. You know, 90% de decrease. So it was a really, really bad time. And, you know, I was busy doing my research and everything, but decided that we really had to – well, I'd already – I'd written a book by, before that, you know, and to really get people interested in elephants, because I knew that they were being hammered, but you know, with with, with uh, for the ivory poaching, and um, and so we we decided Joyce and I were working together at the time, and we decided we've really just got to drop some of our research and work completely on advocacy. So um, so I had written the book, and then um, and then I decided to do a film. I had a, a filmmaker who from the BBC kept coming to me saying, you know, I want to do a film about your work. And I said, no, we don't have time. But then I finally, I got in touch. I said, Marion, it's time. We've got to do a film. Mm -hmm. So, so we started in um, January, 1990. And she wanted to do what she wanted to do, which I, which was a great idea was to focus on one family and do the film on one family. And, um, and so she said, well, who, who should we do? So I made a list of the of the families that were easy to find for one thing, mm -hmm. and I wanted I wanted the matriarch to be um, easy to identify for the, a viewer. You know, something striking about her, and so I you know I sort of came down to about three families, and uh, finally decided on Echo's family, and that's when I really started being very very close to her family because. We followed them every day for, you know, years, and um, and so we we stood, and she and Marion hired this um, cameraman named Martin Colbeck, and he came out in January, and we and we started off, and by by uh, by February we said you know, nothing's happening, you know, how are we going to make a film for this? Nothing, well, you know, they go here, they go there, they eat, they drink. But nothing's happening. <laughs> so, were, you, were you like trying to make trying to make excuses to the filmmakers? Like I promise. <laughs> no, not really. But we were really kind of worried that you know how, how are we going to make a film? And because uh, it wasn't the way films were made back then. A film, the wildlife films would have been take you know a season you know elephants through a season, and then they would use any elephants you know, and then if you know if they saw a birth or, or near birth you know they would follow a little calf but it wouldn't be the same calf it would you know they'd it would be a different calf but they didn't tell the audience that but marion didn't want to do that she wanted to have real individuals and us follow real individuals so so finally somewhere in uh february uh i said let me see who let me see let me check the estrus records you know see who made it who was being made it two years of you know 22 months or 20 or so months ago. And uh, so I looked up the directors. Oh, well, Echo herself was 
was mated, uh, was seen with a bull, etc. And she's due to have a calf in late February or March. So um, that perked us up a bit. Well, maybe something will happen. <laughs> and, uh, and lo and behold, I mean, and then uh, she gave birth to Eli, who was crippled. You've seen the film. I was just amazed. Some people say, how did you do that? Did you tie his legs? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> No, of course not. <laughs> we would have been killed trying to do that. Anyway, that turned out to be just a fabulous story, and you know, and then it never. We never looked back after that. It was only that first month and a half. We're saying, but nothing's happening. But things happened all the time, and and um, and we did. We ended up doing, I think, four films about four films about Echo over the years, and. Um, Anyway, sadly, she died in 2009, but she was, she was like 64 or something. She was old. And, um, but the family's doing unbelievably well. There's four, it's split up. Her, her sister, Ella, decided to, after Echo died, she, formed, she decided to go and live in another, another place up north of Amicelli. So we never see her. And she's a group of like 16 or something. But the other part, the main part, Echo's daughters and everything, is a group of 42. This is from a family wow. that was set. I met them. <coughs> so, they're doing <clears throat> well. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Dr. Boss, I mean, just because... One thing when I was just reading, you know, obviously in this book, and I've heard this before, you know, just reading National Geographic, is just how yeah. elephant families will mourn the loss of a the loss of a member. Can we talk about that really quick? Yeah. Well, especially having just had that orca thing, you, you know, oh my, about the, yep. Oh my God, 17 days. Um, they're just incredibly loyal to their calves and they'll, they'll, um, they'll stay with them for, uh, we even had one female stay for like three days with their dead calf. But, but generally they don't do that. I think their, their, their need to move and feed is so great. But um, but you can see that you can see that a, f a female has lost a calf will often just be in the back of a you know where she'd be in the middle of the family but as they're walking she's in the back with her head low and and just seeing I mean everything about her looks depressed you know yeah they do they do seem to grieve and then they'll they have this interesting ritual of looking and turning bones and getting very quiet around bones. And they'll also try to, I've saw them personally saw them trying to cover a carcass with branches and things like that. So, and we have no idea why they do this, but they do. They sometimes do. Wow. And yeah. I mean, Picking up dirt, breaking branches off and, and covering a carcass. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've heard something too. And I don't, I, I, and I, like I said, I'm just, you know, I guess regarding my elephant knowledge, I am still a, a novice, you know, obviously compared to you, but I have heard reports and tell me if this is true or not, that elephants have been documented. Let's say a family member has died or maybe they've been killed for the ivory or this or that, or, um, I've, I've heard that they've actually removed like the ivory and either like hit it or smashed it against, against rocks. Well, that was reported in, uh, in Savo to be seen by the the warden there said he saw that, but that was just one case, but it's possible. I'm not saying it's, you know, if that's what he saw, I saw it, but I haven't seen it since, but, 
Mm-hmm. But you never know with elephants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what was your first encounter? I mean, is it difficult? Like, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm just going back. I keep on going back to to Carl Safina's book, but I remember yeah. asking him what was, I mean, what affected you the most, which, you know, because he covered elephants. He also did orcas. He did wolves. Yeah. And he said yeah. his time in Amboseli was the experience that just, just emotionally just affected yeah. him the most with the elephants. And he said it was at times so draining. How, how do you do it? I mean, cause I honestly, I mean, like, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I hate to go down this road cause I know it is like a sad, dark road, yeah. but what was your first encounter with an animal you've studied who was poached? I mean, the emotions like, Oh yeah. Uh, what? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's so sad losing, losing, especially it, it gets worse actually. Cause some of these animals I've known for, almost 50 years. So, I mean, that's so as, as the study progresses, it's harder and harder to lose them because they're, they're, you know, I've been, been around them and with them for so many years that it's, um, yeah, the, the echo, echo dying, echo dying was terrible. It was really, 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 I wasn't, I missed it because I was in the States, but I got hopped on a plane and came right back. But my staff was just constant tears. You know, everybody loved her. And uh, it, it's very hard. And to see them poached or hunted, I had a big fight in the 90s with, with um, professional hunters who were killing the Amboseli bulls right across the border in Tanzania. And uh, I fought that and fought that for like five or six months, just nonstop until the Tanzanians agreed not to allow hunting right on the border. And uh, But that, that really... That annoyed me almost more than anything that that people could kill elephants for fun, you know, which is what they're doing. And um, yeah, that that's that's very sad. I think when they die naturally, it's not quite. I mean, Echo did die naturally, but it still was horrible. I mean, it was just we just it was so sad. We spent so much time with her, but um, and her family was so distraught about it, especially her oldest daughter Enid, who just. Oh, I mean, uh, she was so um, she left the rest of the family and just hung out in the area where Echo died and wouldn't leave. And, oh, it was it was it was sad. It's it's wrenching to watch them and to watch the sadness in them. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And did you I mean, yeah, just we just actually did a podcast on trophy hunting, like looking at scientific data. And it, it's it was oh, yeah. it was really interesting. Um yeah. Just trying to, I mean, cause I'll, I'll never be able to see that side, but trying to be, no. <laughs> I don't know, like having the podcast, you try to look at both arguments. Yeah, you try to be, yes. Yes. Yeah. But were you ever concerned about your like safety when you were trying to go up against these, these, these big trophy hunting organizations? Were you ever? No, not really. Cause you know, Kenyon, Kenyon doesn't have hunting, doesn't, hasn't had hunting since nineteen seventy six. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the hunters weren't here, so to speak. They were across mm-hmm. in Tanzania. Um, no, I wasn't worried about about that. You know, I wasn't. Um, but you know, uh, yeah, I, I that was. Um, I wasn't worried about my safety from them, but they were quite nasty to me, you know, because I was fighting them. I was fighting them, you know, Safari Club International and all those people, you know. Uh, oh. Yeah. yeah. 
What do you, I mean, so, I mean, obviously you're against trophy hunting. I mean, with their argument yes. saying it goes back to conservation, I mean, what do you say to that? I mean, do you, I mean. I just think it, it, it just purely ethically, it has, you can't, you can't justify it. It is it, just, just abhorrent to kill animals for fun, for fun, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, killing, you know, I will never do it, but I understand you know, killing a, a deer or an elk and, and having a butcher chop it up and keep it and have it in your freezer for food it makes some sense, you know, to me. Mm -hmm. But but killing an killing an elephant where you all you use are its tusks and maybe chop chop off its feet and make them into umbrella stands and oh things. Oh my god! No, I I just uh, and it's and they're killing trying to kill the biggest bulls. I mean, if so, on a scientific point from the scientific point of view. It's bad for the population because it's the big old bulls who should be mating and fathering the calves. They're, that's the way this, that they've evolved so that the older ones are more are have proven in a sense their their longevity, their health, they're bigger, and that's what you want to pass on to the to the calves. And uh, by mating mating with a forty year old or a fifty year old, that calf is bound to to get some 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 good genes, you know, from that animal that's lived that long. But if if all the older bulls are killed, and you're having the females mate with twenty year olds, maybe they would never, in a normal situation, have mated. Maybe they never would have gotten to that point. So it's just uh, it's it it really disrupts the whole system, the whole reproductive system of, of elephants. What is your favorite yeah. part about researching elephants? My favorite thing in the world to do is to go out alone with nobody else in the car with me and just go and sit among among elephants, especially, you know, that, that to me is just pure joy. Just sit there with the, you know, because we go right, right in very close, turn the engine off and just they go on doing what they would have done if you weren't there. Just being with them is, is such a joy. Yeah, definitely. Could That's you my favorite. Yeah. How long have you stayed there? I mean, I'm sure you've been there all day before. Just oh yeah, yeah, can be there all day, all night. Actually, one of the best things I ever did, one of the more, the most amazing, uh, in terms of feeling close to the elephants, was night watches on the elephants. When um, in I think it was the second Echo film, Martin and I. Um, it was the second. We were we decided to. We knew Echo was, was going to have another calf. And uh, <clears throat> we decided to follow her uh, until she had it. Because all almost like 99% of calves are born at night, not in the daytime. So we knew we had to follow her at night. And we ended up following her for 18 nights. Wow. <laughs> it was exhausting. <laughs> it was exhausting. Thing. trying to keep up with them in the dark and everything not lose them not fall asleep <laughs> and that was that was probably the most intimate thing i've ever done with elephants because because we would get, you know we would follow them and then <coughs> around uh, around midnight they would uh all lie down and go to sleep and and all around our car and there was just the most it was the loveliest thing I've ever had have happened because they were all these big mounds of gray elephant in the moonlight and they would snore. <laughs> it's just, just, just so nice. I remember one night 
echo came right up to my window, my driver right up to my window, and she just stood there, and then her, her daughter, Elliot, was with her, and she came right up. And then they were just there, you know, just being with, as, as some families do, you know, just being with us. And, I mean, I could have touched her. She was that close. She was just right here. And then Elliot just disappeared. <laughs> Where'd she go? So I looked. I looked out, and she had, she was lying down, and she had her head against the wheel. <laughs> oh the my wheel. gosh! <laughs> she was using it kind of like a pillow. <laughs> so that was that was definitely the most intimate I've, I've ever felt with elephants. Is, is at night because mm -hmm. you can't see anything, so you feel like you're just you're just with them. Oh my it's goodness. nice. That's that yeah. sounds that sounds incredible. This is like a bucket list, Doctor Moss. Yes, yes. <laughs> Although Good. I feel like I would drive you crazy if I went on safari with you, because I would be asking you all these questions, yeah. <laughs> and you just said you wanted. I like to go out by myself. <laughs> That's why you said. Uh, so, do you have any advice for any young scientists listening to this podcast if they want to pursue a similar career path as you? Uh, well, they have to. They. They have to be incredibly patient and and be willing, and to not to not look at it as a career or a money making career because you know it's just it's um, to do field work. And I mean, there are a lot of people who come and do their PhDs, but then they have to go back and be professors at you know teachers at university. I never took that route, you know, though I could have, but I'm so glad I didn't because it would take me away most of the time. So there's um, most of the people who come out, you know, teaching somewhere and then they can only come out summers or something like that. So it's very hard to get a job where you're working with the animals all the time. But if that's what you want, it can happen and you just have to make it happen. That's all. You have to be patient and make it happen. Mm -hmm. And how long, Dr. Moss, how long do you see yourself doing this? I mean, I could, I mean, do you just, <laughs> no, I'm serious. So I die, I think, you know. <laughs> yeah, but. But uh, I've got a good team around me. I'm not, I'm not, you know, you know, working flat out. I mean, I do work. I mean, yeah. I haven't retired, but, but I'm 78. So it, how much longer? I'm not going to retire. I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to retire. <laughs> As Martin Kolbeck, you know, my cameraman, he said, no, you're never going to retire. I can just see you with your walker going down the path, <laughs> going down in the, through the grass in the camp, you know. <laughs> my walker. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, Dr. Moss, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this interview. I really appreciate it. So where are you in? I, I was just in Idaho. Where? I was wait, almost, what? I was almost tempted to call because I already had heard from you. But then it just, I um, I was in McCall. Oh, my God. Yes. We're, <laughs> we're like three and a half hours away. Oh, we're going north or? Um, so actually south. So I live, I live about an hour outside of Boise along the Snake oh. River. Beautiful place. I can't believe you were so close to me. That's insane. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I was wondering where you were. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. Please make sure to hit subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps me out. I also encourage you to check out CorbinMaxi.com. You can contact me there personally, even suggest a podcast guest, or if you just want to learn more about animals.
Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. Please make sure to hit subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps me out. I also encourage you to check out CorbinMaxi.com. You can contact me there personally, even suggest a podcast guest, or if you just want to learn more about animals.